Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today on the podcast, Ethan Nickturn regular contributor to the podcast. He is the author of several books, uh, including most recently The Dharma of the Princess Bride. He is also a longtime teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. And this is a talk he gave earlier this week about lineage. What is lineage? Why does it matter? What's the point of lineage? How does one remain an authentic person while also being a part of uh, a lineage? A tradition. Is there a tension there? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Ethan Nickturn. Visit our website, ny.shambhala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats. Our next introductory meditation weekend, which is called Shambhala Training Weekend 1, is coming up the weekend of November 2nd. That's Friday night, November 2nd, uh, all day November 3rd, and uh, half day November 4th on Sunday. If you've never meditated before, it's a great opportunity. If you have meditated before, it's also a great opportunity to dive in, deepen your meditation practice in the context of a weekend little mini retreat. For more information and to register, visit our website, nymbala.org, and click the link on the homepage, Shambhala Training Weekend 1, Feel Human Again. All right, Ethan, over to you. So I wanted to talk about lineage because it is such a key aspect of Buddhist teachings and teachings on working with the mind and working with what is reality and also how to be a decent person in this not always so decent world. Um, and one of the gifts that I've really taken, very simple gifts from Buddhist psychology, is this very simple view framework, which I often work with my students on, applying to a lot of different areas, where we look at how, in any given situation, our mind has a tendency to craft our beliefs in sort of extremes, Right? Kind of all or nothing approaches to whatever it is, right? So this is the, this extreme beliefs, it could apply to something like um, emotions, for example. That's a big place where the Buddhist teaching on extreme beliefs comes in. So what are the two extremes, right? They're kind of opposite of each other. And the two extremes with emotions are you either really fixate has anybody ever fixated on emotion? Do, do I have to describe what that? Or what's the other extreme? Ignore, suppress, push it away, right? So either grab on or push away. And that tends to be any discussion of the energetic, mental quality behind extremes, right? So with any situation in life, we could actually analyze it. Like, what are my sort of extreme tendencies towards how I'm working with this. 
And when it comes to lineage, I think, you know, in terms of tradition, in terms of like identifying with like, I'm a Buddhist or Shambhalian, which is very, that's an interesting one because that tradition's uh, less than 50 years old. It's rooted in a thousand year old tradition, but the tradition itself is less than 50 years old, but people can really identify, right? And so that's obviously this sort of over identification with a tradition can be one extreme, right? And you can see this in the world all the time. Like we just really want an identity. One of the ways I see this come up just within different Buddhist communities, very simple is like eyes open or eyes closed when you practice mindfulness of your body breathing. Like that defines like, oh, they practice eyes open. And whenever I'm teaching a meditation teacher training, the worst thing I could do is say, we practice eyes open. That is a very fundamentalist approach to lineage, right? It would make a lot more sense if we say, here's why you might want to try. Here are the cognitive or experiential aspects that we are emphasizing when one tries to practice eyes open meditation, right? But we can even get fundamentalist about whether we open or close our eyes in meditation because we want an emotion to fixate on, right? We want a right, we want a certainty. So with lineage, there's this sense of sort of fundamentalism, right? Over identity. And what's the, what's the other extreme, which I do think maybe in a place like New York in this sort of time, maybe is a little bit more go-to because perhaps, I mean, at least, well, both of my parents, my mother was raised, um, uh, Methodist in small town, Arkansas. My father was raised. Jewish in New York City, and both of them became Tibetan Buddhists before I was born. Um, my father doesn't describe it that way. He says, if my Buddhist teacher were Sufi, I would be a Sufi now. I was just really into that guy, right? But they both, their Buddhist practice was maybe a reaction against what they considered more, this is how we do it, don't ask any questions, traditions which is interesting then what's my, um, what's my relationship to Buddhism? When you when your parents already rebelled, what do you do? <laughs> and then what does your daughter do? It's just the various iterations of this whole thing. Um, and so what is the rebellion or the other extreme? It could be like, no, nah, I'm not into lineage. I'm not into tradition. I'm not into anything that has a, like even a hierarchy or a ceremony. The bow made me uncomfortable, right? Who's that on the shrine? Why is this space, uh, who decided any of this? I'm going to do it this way, you know? And it's interesting how this plays out because a lot of times it plays out as just like, I'm going to figure it out myself which can have a lot of, in each of these extremes, there's a certain intelligence. That's the other part of noticing our extremes. There's, there's a certain wisdom in the extremes, right? So some kind of self-actualization there. 
also I noticed um, from college onward, a lot of times this, the way this played out is just um, sort of picking the little bits of like, like I'll do a little bit of Peruvian shamanism, a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit of postmodern art, you know, a little bit of Burning Man, a little bit of gospel singing, you know. This is the way a lot of people in the city figure out their spirituality. It's just the little bits that make me feel kind of connected, right? I'm going to sort of piece it together, pastiche, right? And there can be a real wisdom because in that approach, you could draw the pieces that really resonate from you from different approaches. But oftentimes you end up feeling, I don't know, has anybody felt this way, like sort of unanchored by that approach? Like just sort of, I'm making this thing up and it would be really helpful if I weren't completely making it up. Like if there were like a human tradition that I were part of. So this is a very oversimplified approach. Anytime you actually go talking about the extremes, you end up sort of, it's a very two-dimensional framework, but it's helpful to just look at the fundamentalism versus the like extreme individualism. If I wanted to put when it comes to lineage or tradition, those tend to be the, would you agree with that kind of as a basic framework to work in? And I really want to honor now that I've made fun of the individualism. Um, I really want to honor that the, the rebellion against fundamentalism is really important, you know, because a lot of times you just end up staying in situations where your identity just causes you to avoid the ways that the teachings are not really being lived up to. Like the tradition is not really alive, you know, you could talk about what's happening in Shambhala, you know, we could talk about, um, you know, we could talk about anything we want and we could just focus on the religious aspects, right? The Pennsylvania Catholic church rife with harm, but this is also happening all over academia now, which has its own sense of lineage and ceremony and tradition, right? There's, there's no real, there's no real tradition right now that isn't being called out for solidifying into some zombie mentality that caused harm to some people, right? Can anybody think of a tradition that's right now, that's like a group of people have identified and have passed this on for a while. That's nobody has any issues with interpersonal or uh, social or systemic harm happening right now. Right. It's happening on both sides of the political aisle. Of course, I, I do want to honor that when it happens to the Democrat, they usually resign the next day. Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> that is not equal. <laughs> right. When it happens to the Republican, they're like, we need to push this vote through faster. Get them on the, get them on the Supreme Court. Oh, there's four allegations. Get them through faster. So, but we're, none of us are safe from 
the sort of solidification of tradition, right? So you get, I totally get why my father felt whatever his experience as a kid growing up Jewish was like, something wasn't speaking to his relevant experience, even though it was a group of ceremonies and texts that had been passed down. And that what did speak to him, and he said, was this person I met, Chogyam Trungpa, who's the founder of the Shambhala tradition, was a person not without controversy, but what spoke to him is that there was a real living relationship going on. There was something resonating live in the moment, you know? And I think everybody who said, I'm gonna make it up on my own, and if it's part ayahuasca ceremony, part mindfulness meditation, you know, part um, sound bath healing, part cooking classes, uh, that at least resonates with me. I feel alive, right? I feel like I'm actually awakening in that space. The other thing I'll say about the Buddhist aspect of tradition, this is really interesting, is like we're definitely in new territory with Buddhism because um, with technology and with Buddhism coming to the West, like I say this a lot when students or friends are saying like, like does it matter if I like, I'm into Tibetan Buddhism or uh, Theravadin, the earliest form of Buddhism, or Zen, or, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm into Japanese Zen or Korean Zen or so forth. And what I always want to remind people is like, this is a very new experience that a person could be in one city and in even wanting to study Buddhist meditation and have multiple options. Like, the reason it's called Tibetan Buddhism is if you were in Tibet, that was the kind of Buddhism that was available to you. So there wasn't like, are we going, like in Lhasa, they didn't used to say, do you want to go to the Zen center tonight? It wasn't like an option, you know? And so the, the notion of having choices is also a new thing. And I think that part is to be really celebrated. And that's also what's fueling the, I'll figure this out myself, you know, as well as the, let's be honest, the disappointment. I, I do think in any of these arenas, whether it's your family tradition or your work tradition or your um, creative tradition or your social justice tradition or your um, spiritual tradition, if there was no disappointment in the tradition, nobody would really need to invent something new. Right? So what's the middle path? Right? That's always where the, and, and sometimes people say the middle path is sort of neither one or the other. And, but I think it, the middle path usually draws on the wisdom of each of these two extremes, right? Because I do find, I've found this, that people who, if they're studying meditation or Buddhism, people who do commit to some tradition, it tends to anchor their practice more. And I'm not saying this because people, you can, I know people, and I'm being a little anecdotal here, but I think the evidence of the lot of people I know really does generally back this up. 
I know some people who just say, I'm just going to have my practice. I'm going to read what I want to read. If I want to go on this retreat or that retreat or this thing or that thing, and they keep it alive and they bring it into how they practice and they find their support network through whatever ways that they've managed to develop in their own life. And, uh, their practice really deepens over the years. But most of the people I know who have a lifelong connection with like, I'm really on a journey here and I'm really deepening, they're related to some tradition. They've anchored or committed in some tradition. Not everybody, but most, right? So it's, um, I'll borrow from something that Chogyam Trungpa said when somebody asked, do you need a teacher? Do you need a spiritual teacher? And um, Chogyam Trungpa said, you don't, but it's a lot harder without one. And I thought that was a really honest answer. Like, he's not trying to sell you anything, or maybe you think he is, sort of sly, like, oh, no, no, you could go the cheap route, but don't you want the... But I think we could say the same thing about committing to a lineage spiritually. And I'm not saying just one, but a main lineage, which is um, you don't need to do that, but it tends to be harder because you do have to piece together your community and you have to somehow piece together the ideas that different teachers and different communities and different uh, wisdom beings have developed uh, that makes sense to you. And you have to figure out how to sort of systematize them into a practice, a path, and a, a, a series of rituals that inform your life, right? But I really think it's crucial, especially now, that we do acknowledge that we're in this age where the fundamentalist approach to a tradition, meaning a tradition that says, don't ask any questions. And whether that que tradition is saying, don't ask what the priest or the Lama is doing in the back room right now, or that tradition saying, don't ask why we meditate this way. We did, this is just how we do it. I think that era has to die. And I think that's part of what's happening. The notion of a tradition being something you just buy into and don't ask questions. I'm hoping it's over. That's what it feels like is happening. Like the, the, the notion of a tradition where the practitioner doesn't come and say, you know what? I am an individual. I do have my own wisdom. Harm has been caused when people too blindly follow. So how can I participate in this lineage? How can I find my authentic self and still feel like part of something? And I do think that's, if we want to find the middle path, that's what we should be looking for when we look for traditions, which is you go to a place and you feel like, can I really be myself there? And do I feel like these people are drawing on something that they didn't just make up yesterday? 
Because that's the other thing that I've seen is starting to happen in, in the yoga and now in the meditation world. It happened first in the yoga world because yoga got popular first. Is this sense of like people claiming lineages that started when they opened their yoga center. From a real Buddhist or anything that has integrity perspective, that's a no-no. You can claim a new school, but you can't claim a new lineage. I was once actually talking to one of my teachers and, and mentors, uh, uh, a Tibetan Lama, um, but he lives in Seattle, tells a lot of jokes about Starbucks and likes to quote Jimi Hendrix songs when he teaches. His name is Dzogchen Ponla Prinpache. And he was saying that lineage is always something that's acknowledged after the fact. So if anyone is claiming a lineage as the brand that they're going to start now, that's not what a lineage is, right? It's something deeper than that. And I found it incredibly necessary to um, claim a tradition. Even when I don't agree with everything that goes on within a school or within a student-teacher relationship or within a sangha, a community, which I, I don't know if you're up to date on Shambhala, but I think most of you are. But I still want to be part of the Shambhala lineage because the teachings of a lineage, that's the other thing. It's about more than just one person, right? It's an actual support structure. And one thing that's always resonated to me with me is sometimes it's the focus on individuals that gets us in trouble. Like individuals is a good thing to focus on in when we're focusing on ourselves and when we're focusing on interpersonal relationships. But when we're talking about a lineage or tradition, you're talking about something much bigger than uh, individuals. And I remember being fascinated. I was watching a couple years ago this documentary series. Um, I think it was a PBS series, but I think I was watching it on Netflix. And the series was called How We Got to Now. And it's this sort of scientist. He's, he's sort of a little like Neil deGrasse Tyson, but his name's Steven Johnson, I think. And sort of who really takes an interest in sort of not just science, but the, the sort of evolution of scientific thought. And so each episode is sort of like the history of how a certain science develops. So like one episode, it's pretty nerdy, but one episode is like how we all got on the same clock, which is really interesting. Like even that has happened in the last 10 years, like all iPhones are set together. So we're literally like on to the microsecond, a lot of us are on the same clock, but he's talking about like how in the 19th century, that wasn't the case. Like you would take a train from like New York to Philadelphia, and then you would have to take another train line from Philadelphia to Washington DC, but they would be, their sense of time would be hours apart. So you would get to Philadelphia and one train line would think it was like 10.30 AM and the other train line would be like, no, it's 11.45 right now. So how did we all get like on the same clock, right? And it's really interesting talking about the evolutions and there's moments where individual geniuses decided 
the next evolution, right? But he stops for a moment in one of the episodes and he says, you have to understand that the way we think about scientific discovery and innovation is completely wrong. Like the notion of the lone genius who just figured everything out and they were way smarter than everyone else, phenomenally smart. That's not the way anything works. That person usually was prepped and primed by circumstance and they were calling on the work always of 20 other scientists who had almost discovered something and their experiment had just failed or hadn't had the right circumstance. And so the person who we think of as the genius is always standing on the shoulders of a lineage, right? There is no lone scientist. I'm just thinking like that's a real lineage, you know? And so it's interesting. Like, I don't know if Albert Einstein sat and meditated or Neil deGrasse Tyson does talk about it. He talks about his relationship with Carl Sagan as a, as a lineage holder. And, but that notion of like sitting down to meditate and saying like, I am not the first person who has struggled with my own mind. And I'm going to call actually on the lineage. That's part of the Tibetan tradition. And that doesn't mean you have to love every member of a lineage. That's the interesting thing about the Tibetan lineages is they're full of all different kinds of characters. And some you say, that's my person. I totally resonate with that story. By the way, way too few female bodied characters in Tibetan history, very male dominated, uh, masculine society, patriarchal, and I'm sort of sick of every Tibetan Buddhist teacher being like, but there was this one woman named Yeshe Sogyal. And you're like, that's not enough. <laughs> right? So hopefully that shifts in the future. Um, but you can actually call on other silly people who were confused and shared a humanity and struggled with something. And lineage is, it's really not meant to oppress us. It's not meant to say, you have to do it this way. Eyes open, stupid, you know, or you're not as good as your teacher, right? That's another place where lineage goes wrong. The teacher's role is to make the students feel empowered, right? Otherwise, what is it? It's hero worship or some kind of uh, celebrification. And we've seen so many examples of how that goes wrong. Haven't we? Is anybody not familiar with how that goes wrong when it's all about the teacher? But there's this sense of like, oh, I can call on that person to support. They struggled this way too. They had a few insights too. They had trust in their inner wisdom and basic goodness, their awakened nature too. Please come help me. Right. And does that person need to have been a perfect person? Good, good luck with that one. Good luck. And just wait till the revisionist biography comes out about that person, right? Anybody who's set up to be a perfect person is setting up some journalist uh, to do what I like to call narrative short selling, 
which is there's always a journalist. As soon as something, as soon as something gets popular, you see this with meditation. Now the, the big articles now about meditation are all about how the early research totally overstated its benefits, right? Cause somebody wanted to say, wow, a lot of people are meditating. What's the story I can tell about this, how it's not really how meditation could be harmful. So those for this year, there've been a few stories that are popular like that. Right. And if you try to proclaim pr perfection, somebody's going to find a flaw. So let's not expect perfection. Let's also not expect horrible things. Like the lineage should be full of characters of integrity, right? Characters who are honest about their struggle, right? Characters who don't claim to have qualities that they don't have. And that should be true of your spiritual lineage. That should be true of your creative lineage, your social justice lineage, right? But that idea that you can actually have a lineage is really important. And it's actually, uh, it's weird because at this time where this lineage, actually, well, here's how I'll say it. This organization is in so much doubt. The lineage has become more and more important to me. The lineage of those who believe in basic goodness and want to fearlessly help bring about awakened, compassionate society. And I call on them every day, you know? And when somebody says, um, what's your tradition? I don't say, well, you know, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I do say all the traditions that I've studied. Like if you read my bio, I have studied with Zen teachers. I have studied with Theravada Buddhist teachers. I have studied with Western psychotherapists. I do have a yoga practice, but my tradition is Shambhala Buddhism. And if I tried to pretend it wasn't, I wouldn't have a lot of integrity. Do you see why? So, I think I want to open it up to discussion at this point, but um, that's really what I want to offer is if you can notice, just notice your extreme approaches to connecting with the tradition and whatever the middle path is there for you, that's going to be where it gets a little uncomfortable and probably where the awakening happens. And it's really about being your authentic self while participating in something much larger than any individual. So what's on your mind? If anybody wants to share your contemplation or what came up for you as I was talking or thoughts, questions. Um, as you spoke, uh, what came to my mind is that I have no lineage hmm. except uh, family and mm -hmm. that is one so yes it leaves it, it, it's leaving me in suspension state yeah yeah well family is a very powerful lineage you know it's a very it can be a very powerful lineage so I would almost say um, if the family could be our spiritual lineage, you know, no. 
Yeah. So, th so that's uh, when I talk about lineage, a lot of times, especially in modern 21st century, a, a lot of people say like, you know, I don't have that, you know, you know, and we're also in a country that's doesn't always acknowledge its real lineage, like what actually happened to build this country. We are not very transparent, right? Which is always that like when the talk gets to immigration, I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that you're willing to have this conversation without an actual acknowledgement of what this place is? That's the thing that I've noticed about the lineage, the problematic aspect of the lineage of patriarchy is, and I encourage you to test this in your own experience, it's not just about dudes running everything, although that is clearly a problem. The energetic is that it's not transparent. It's not honest. You know, it's not like, here's what's actually going on here. Because then it would be an immigrant talking about more immigrants, like, you know, one of the white male senators would be like, well, my family is immigrants. So let's have this conversation from that place. And we were violent immigrants. We were the people Mr. Trump talks about, right? So now let's talk about lineage. But all of that is to say that I think the first Step Manali for me is just to acknowledge that maybe um, maybe this is an unknown, you know, and it's it's good to hold that, you know. And uh, I've known what my lineage is. I mean, I've struggled with it, but since I was a kid, I've known that this was my lineage. But really came to it, you know, in in college more than any other time, but. So my struggle now is not uncertainty about the lineage. It's sort of the pain of having to hold that at a really difficult moment for the lineage. But I imagine that, um, I'll say another kind of profound thing. If we were completely healed about our lineage, you would be awake. That would be enlightenment. If there was no uncertainty, no pain, no struggle, in this question, it would be awakening. Um, and a lot of forms of the reason I said that thing about family Manali is a lot of forms of Western psychology take the approach that basically enlightenment is the healing of the family lineage. Like if that, if one's relationship with healthy parents and healthy intergenerational traumas from the family were completely reintegrated and healed, you would basically be what the Buddhist tradition calls awake or enlightened, right? So um, there should be a little, not just because it's rainy and quiet tonight, there probably should be a little bit of like struggle around this topic in other, or else you should be the one giving the talk. <laughs> and maybe you should anyway. <laughs> so thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, so, um, what is a lineage? Yeah. Which, you know, at what point, thinking of Shambhala lineage, how far back do you 
go to uh, figure out what the essence is. Right. And uh, thinking of various issues that have cropped up recently, uh, where's where's the foundational basis and what what's extraneous right. to a lineage? Right, right, exactly, right. So there's this great question. So I think any lineage, whether it's spiritual, scientific, political, artistic, um, would have to have a shared, some shared common exploration or common purpose, right? So Buddhist lineage, the notion is that what's being passed on, because Buddhism means literally the path of awakening, is a body of teachings and practices about waking up fully to humanity. So, so the Shambhala lineage grounds itself in what used to be called Tibetan Buddhism as a location, what's probably more accurately called Tantric or Vajrayana Buddhism. But with a particular body of teachings and strands throughout Tibetan history that are specifically related to societal awakening. That's my understanding. That it's not just a lineage that's about passing down ideas of individual awakening, awakening but how does a healthy human society get created? And the core principle there is one of... Um, acknowledging the basic goodness of all human beings and the basic goodness of oneself um, and the idea of warriorship, which is the notion of kind of fearlessly diving in to the difficult moments in one's own life and in one's world. So there's a series of, any lineage needs a series of kind of like core transmissions, right? It wouldn't have made sense in the, the um, how we got to now story if the scientist was saying like one person was, you know, trying to figure out painting and the other one was trying to figure out how time works. You know, there needs to be some shared transmissional strand that everybody is struggling with. So... I, I think part of it is that to be part of a lineage, I think we're constantly trying to figure out um, what is the essence and what is the sort of accoutrement of that moment. Um, and I think what's transmitted is the essence. So what's transmitted in Shambhala is a transmission of the basic goodness of humanity. That part feels indispensable, but whether or not this person is leading it or that person is leading it, I mean, the, 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 there's certain texts that say certain things about what the lineage should be or has to be, um, but those texts are open to interpretation, and those texts were... Um, written by an individual. So that's where lineage gets tricky. When one individual says, I found this thing that's universal, and we have to use that as a root text from here on, right? That actually gets very tricky. If you look at the Bible, right? You could use the Bible to justify feeding the poor. You could 
use it to justify bombing poor people. It is simultaneously right now in the world being justified for both of those things. So is it the textual transmission? I mean, in a sense, I actually think that those things are a little untrustworthy because they're so open to interpretation. Um, and the other thing I'll say is there's this thing in, um, I learned this because I started a nonprofit in um, organizational speak. I think it's specifically related to um, uh, nonprofit organizations, but have you all heard this phrase founders syndrome? Supposedly this thing that happens whenever the founder of an organization trying to figure out what should happen now. And there's always a tradition, uh, uh, a tension in any lineage between whatever happened with the lineage and what should happen now. And, uh, so I think that the democratic process of the community having a voice is the um, uh, uh, is sort of a safeguard for me. Now you could say, <laughs> I actually said that to a friend, and um, uh, that that like democracy or the community having a voice is really it, it it really makes things grounded and she said yeah but you don't want it to just be a popularity contest i mean look at who people chose as popular musicians and you could totally see that approach but you're also like wait a minute maybe there's something to the people maybe there's something to taylor swift that was who my friend mentioned as problematic because of their own tastes. And you're like, well, we should maybe study why Taylor Swift is pop, why that resonates with people, right? Because it, otherwise it's just us sitting in a room developing our musical tastes that don't really connect with where people are, you know? And I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but that would be really arrogant to be like, if you let the people choose, they choose the wrong things. And I think it's actually pretty rare that if you actually let the people choose, they choose the wrong thing. I know you can argue the 2016 election, but I'm not sure that was the people choosing. There were a lot of media CEOs who decided to really push a narrative that made a lot of that happen. It was a lot of the gatekeepers a lot of times make popularity, what's popular happen. So what happens when you really have this interplay between people being humble and saying, I want to be part of a lineage. Like I didn't make it up yesterday. Teach me something and listen to me. What happens when that balance is truly struck? Right. And I think we all like the idea that there is wisdom in the world, you know, that there is something trustworthy. Don't you like the idea that, it's really lonely to feel like there's, they're all screwed up, all authority figures, screw all of them. Like, whenever somebody's like, tear it all down, that feels very immature to me. Like, I get, I felt that way, and I get especially if you've been harmed or oppressed or traumatized, why one feels that way. But 
I also want to be like, do you realize you're the one who's going to have to stand in the rubble, you know, and find shelter in the rubble and find connection in the rubble and find safety and medicine in the rubble. Like it's not just going to be tear it all down and walk away. Right. So what is in the system that is trustworthy? And then also how can we have a voice? And I think that's the balance. That's the wisdom of, I think what's come from the East is the notion that like, there was this person who tried to figure out how to be a person and they passed on certain essences, but those essences had to meet the audience at each place that they went. And if they didn't meet the audience, they didn't survive, you know? So there is a safeguard in democracy, you know? So it's, it seems like Chogyam Trungpa, um, uh, the founder of Shambhala was not into democracy. That's him calling right now. <laughs> I disagree with him on that point, which sort of proves how powerful democracy is, doesn't it? <laughs> you could say, wait, are you allowed to teach in Shambhala and disagree with the founder of Shambhala on like, he has these texts where he says, he had a really interesting argument about what was wrong with democracy. Um, do you all want to hear his? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the important part of the argument for me, he talks about it in various places, is he thought democracy creates a system where everybody is basically constantly convincing themselves, I would be happier if I were someone else. You know, if I were in charge, things would run better. If only I were the president, you know. So basically what he said is nobody ever really takes their seat in society, you know, and says, I'm going to really rouse my confidence and I'm going to really use my voice and use my uh, compassion and wisdom in this place in society, right? So he thought democracy creates this system where everybody wanted to be someone else all the time. And he thought that was very ungrounding. And I think there's a really intelligent aspect to that, right? Anytime you walk into a, um, a place where like a service place, that's the thing that happens a lot in New York is that the people who work in the service industry want to do something else, right? That's sort of a classical cliche, right? You can tell the people who are saying like, well, I may want to do something else. I may want to be a writer, but this is what I'm doing for right now. And I'm going to make this my practice. And you can see how that energy like actually creates a good human society as opposed to the person who you can tell is just like, I'm writing my book in my head. What, what do you want? You know, and that radiates out into society, right? The, including the college professor who's like, actually, I'm just here teaching this class so I can get my thing written so I can get a better gig, right? The thing is, I don't know how much this has to do with democracy. It's, I, I always felt this was a really good commentary, but he was localizing it on the wrong. I would put it more into consumer culture, right? Always wanting to sell yourself an image of like, I need to be a different person. And so I disagree with the founder of my tradition on something pretty strong. Should I leave the tradition? 
interesting question, right? Here I am. <laughs> what do you do? Right? You could also set up a system. This is where it gets sneakier, where the people who aren't completely on board, you just give with everything, you just give them, you just push them to the side a little bit. Right? So we've all, I think, been in, in traditions where that kind of oppression happens. That supposedly happens in political traditions too. Just like, just going to make sure you come up one vote shy in the primary. So that's interesting too. But it's interesting to hold this tension, right? Like, no, this is my tradition. And I disagree with certain points. And you might have disagreed with something that I said. And then to say, um, well, should I go find a different place? Is this tradition not for me? That's also horrifying for me as a teacher, right? When somebody, when you feel like, oh, crap. Somebody might disagree with me and think I'm the tradition and therefore not study and practice the tradition. That's like a terrifying thought for me that I might just through my own little subject positions and my own little aesthetic things and my political beliefs or my whatever, the things I like to talk about or, oh my God, maybe there's a Taylor Swift fan in the room. And even though that story wasn't about me, like, what if they don't believe in basic goodness anymore because they didn't like my talk, right? That's also where I think we as students need to be a little bit more grown up. Like, we need to be like, you know what? I don't have to like everything about the sangha or the teachers. I just need to be connecting, feel like this is the place to connect with the essence. And the essence of this tradition is basic goodness, enlightened society, and warriorship. Um, and you have to want to work with your own mind. And if you're into that, we can figure it out. But you may find, like, I'm into all those things, but there are other traditions that do that better for me. And that's fine, too. But at a certain point, I do think we have to be part of a lineage. Because we already are. And that's basically what this scientist was saying. It's like the idea of individual discovery is so flawed from the perspective of how reality works. And I do feel like when you really call upon your lineage, did anybody feel this when you were um, thinking about your work lineage or your uh, family lineage or your spiritual lineage? Like, I'm not alone. It's empowering. That's what it's supposed to be. A lineage is supposed to make you feel like, I can do this crazy human thing. Right? Something has my back that's in the past. It's not just original sin and awful human behaviors and, um, you know, neurosis descending down through the ages. Because if that's what it is, like, then the future just gets worse and worse. So, um, I think lineage can be a really positive thing, but it's not going to be comfortable. Um, but if we really look at the, I'm going to figure this out all by myself approach, that's not comfortable either. It might feel righteous, but it's not 
comfortable. It's not because then you have to go, you literally have to figure everything out yourself. You're alone in the universe. That's really hard. I feel like I'm talking too much. <laughs> One more, or should we transition to more, since we have a slightly smaller group tonight, should we make this more, should we close and talk informally over, should we bring snacks into the picture? Let's make a democratic, empower the, the lineage. How many people want to move into the community room and bring a little of the best of Trader Joe's lineage into our experience? Yeah. Does that, is there any question that feels like it's really important to address? I'm feeling hesitation, right? We don't know what to commit to. A question? Okay, this will be the last one then. I mean, as I listen to you speak, there's this, there's this edge in what you're talking about between defending what we all know happened with our lineage, let's say. With Shambhala. With Shambhala lineage. Yeah. Versus what you're saying about accepting, and you know, I accept you with your foibles, you accept the people who came before you with their foibles. Yeah. Um, and there's something powerful about that, and yet there's somehow it feels like there's some avoidance yeah, yeah. Of, of reality. Thank you. So let me, can I clarify a little bit? Uh, that's great. Um, when I say acceptance, and I think in this case we're talking about specifically about um, uh, recent allegations of sexual assault and misconduct against Saka and Nipamrimshe, who's the current patriarchal head of the Shambhala lineage. Um, there's an acceptance that he's in the lineage, and there's an acceptance that he's been my teacher, for sure. Um, in terms of acceptance of his foibles, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that I want to empower him in my own experience the same way that I have in the past. So acceptance, I think a lot of times people in general think you're talking about acceptance. Like somebody said you, to me, you need to accept that Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And I said, what makes you think I haven't accepted that? And I said, well, you, for example, you tweeted today that he's an illegitimate president. And I said, yeah, what makes you think I haven't accepted that he's president of the United States? Well, you're, you, it seems like you want, you're angry at him. You want him to go away. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> what about that is not acceptance, right? So I think a lot of times we think of acceptance as like, it's acceptance just means you're letting something inhabit your heart and mind, and you're not doing the rejecting it from your experience. So for me, it would feel actually more avoidant to be like, maybe you're saying it's avoidant because I hadn't said his name in the talk. And the reason for that is I'm not sure that everybody in the room cares about that. That's, that's the position I've been with a lot of students and friends over the summer is trying to make myself as available and transparent as I can be when people do want to talk about it. And some people just want to like talk about their practice rather than dramatizing over this leader figure, which is part of the whole problem of patriarchy is you're always focusing on a dude who's not in the room 
you know? And so that's why I didn't, you know, mention his name. But for me, I do have to accept that he's been my teacher and he's taught me quite a lot. And that has, and that's not the first person this year that I've had to accept that about. Um, and they're not all men either. You know, one of the things I had to accept, my editor asked me if I wanted to edit out my reference before my book went to paperback. It's a small reference to Ansan Suu Kyi. So people know who she is? The president, I think her role is more uh, prime minister, but of Burma, who's uh, no, no, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner in 1991. She sometimes had been considered like the Nelson Mandela of Asian Buddhism and also a woman Buddhist political leader. So very powerful as like an image figure. And it's become clear over the past couple of years that she's either been passively enabling or supportive of the persecution and uh, genocide of the small Muslim population in her country. And so she's been stripped of various human rights awards, right? So it's an interesting question, like, do you want to edit that out? And that's one of the things I'm thinking about right now is what is it, is it better to leave that in? Or is it better because she's in a list of bodhisattvas in my potential people we could look to? I came to the conclusion it's probably better not to trigger the reader further so that they could actually think of people they consider, you know, bodhisattvas. Um, so accepting means that, like, she has this amazing quote. I don't really know her work well, but if you're feeling helpless, help someone. That's an amazing quote. So should I never mention that quote again, you know? And that's, that's, acceptance means accepting all of it. And then the question of lineage is what do we want to empower next? So I personally don't want to empower a singular patriarchal head of Shambhala who has all the power. And that's what I can say. But I also have to accept, if I'm going to be integrity, that this is a person who has taught me quite a lot including meditation practices that this is where it gets really freaking complicated for me, including he's the person who's taught me most of the psychological and contemplative disciplines that allow me to hold how fucked up this moment really is. So now it gets really complicated. And this notion of just like, you know, get rid of them or, or like, it's like, what, what do you mean? How do you get rid of somebody in, in your mind? You know, how do you get rid of a, somebody who's meant that much? And I think, I think the question of acceptance is different from, um, the, uh, question of, uh, what do I want to do next? What do I want to empower next in my own experience and help empower as an ally to others, uh, in the world? Right. Um, and so that's the other piece of lineage is it includes the people who taught you what not to do. And it includes your own inner experiences of the moments you screwed up or you were, I was complicit with something, but that's the advanced practice. I think the beginner practice is just to realize that we have support, that the past actually has been positive, that there are things to look to for positivity. Um, so I didn't mean to be avoidant at all, and I do request your forgiveness and apologize for, for that. Um, and I definitely didn't mean that acceptance means accept that 
empower people who continuously cause harm. That's not what acceptance means, right? I'm doing everything I can in my life to not do that anymore. Starting November six, um, I, I knew all of that because I've, I've read your recent writings yeah. online. But it was nice to hear you say it, and that's what I yeah reason for my question. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not an easy moment, and it's it's particularly not an easy moment for black and white thinking. And that's the other thing I've noticed at this moment, and I'll just leave you with it. Some of the people who are being the most negative, like sort of solid about like, screw this, throw it out. If you look at their history, they were the ones who were the most adorationally devotional. And that's an interesting extreme too. Like, so as a teacher, I'm sort of like, when somebody's like, you're amazing. I'm like, okay, this is going to go wrong at some point. It's really the people who are like, thank you so much. I appreciate what you've taught, and I have my own perspective on it. And do you mind if we talk about that? And can I share my ideas? Can we share our experience? Then you're like, okay, this is going to be a real relationship. And this person is going to disagree with you in the future, but they're not going to end up like hating you. <laughs> the person who adores us too much is probably going to be the person who um, uh, is the most harsh in the future. So that's, that's another thing about extreme beliefs. Yeah. Okay, now Trader Joe's time and more informal conversation. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Ethan Nickturn, for that talk. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. You know, you can email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, you can hear these talks live and in person every Tuesday night. It's our weekly Dharma gathering for newcomers, uh, old-timers. Everyone is invited every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Okay? Later. <laughs>